When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What do I do with all the good things that I point to in my life that come from Bill Cosby? What do I do about all the influence he's had over my life and career? Is all that stuff a lie? And then how do I talk about it? Because like now if somebody asks me, who are the comedians you grew up listening to? I can say Eddie Murphy and Bill Cosby because I've done this whole doc that explains how I feel about Bill Cosby. But 10 years ago, if you said, who are the comedians you grew up being inspired by? It was hard to say Bill Cosby because I didn't want to get into that conversation. Brothers and sisters, my name is Kirk Franklin, and I come to give you good words. Let's go. Good works, family. Man, I have a chance to interview a thought-provoking, engaging, inspiring comedian, executive producer, host of the Emmy-winning CNN docuseries that I watch all the time, United Chase of America. He regularly uses his stand-up to offer commentary on how to build a better world and is the ACLU celebrity ambassador for racial justice. Making it his business to have the hard conversations in public, he directed the critically acclaimed yet controversial docuseries, We Need to Talk About Cosby. Watched it as soon as it came out, soon as it came out, and watched two or three times because I thought it was just brilliantly told. It was compassionate, it was moving, it was heartbreaking, and it was inspiring for me as a man of color. Please welcome today, y'all, possibly somebody who doesn't even know that we are both Denzel Washington groupies. He has no idea who he's talking to today. He's talked to many other men and women. He will never talk to anyone that will be a fan of his the most. Please welcome W. Come out, Bell. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. You, I, I don't know if you know how much I needed that today. I was having one of those days where you're like, whose idea was all this? What did I get myself into? Why did I choose to have this life? Well, here we go. So I needed some of that today. Thank you. Listen, listen, you know Kirk and Kamal was happening someday, especially the fact that we share the same birthday. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I should have known when you all reached out. I was like, oh, oh, okay. I just You never know who's paying attention to you or, or why they want to talk to you. So I was like, maybe I'm in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and God told him to call me up, have a conversation yeah. with him. Pull me in. Well, that's why my first question is, I want to know why. Why would someone who is as leftist, liberal, and as progressive as you even want to have a combo with someone like me who is a part of a community that has such an oppressive and duplicitous history with our people? Are you talking about the church? Yes. Me believing in what the old heads would call the white man's religion. Oh my goodness. Well, first of all, before I was described as a leftist, left-leaning liberal or whatever that was, I was a black kid who had to go to church with his grandmother and with his mom. So, you know, my grandmother's was from Mobile, Alabama. My other grandmother's from Indianapolis, Indiana. Both went to Baptist churches that I went to when I visited them. My mom went to Methodist church in Boston, Massachusetts when we lived there. So, you know, I was a church kid just like anybody else. I had a brief period of time as an altar boy lighting the fire like I, I was telling somebody the other day i think i caught a solo in church one when i was young and had that little kid voice are you serious cer- certainly grew up around the church and went to spend a lot of my time in church as a kid and you know to this day one of my closest friends is pastor michael mcbride who leads the way yeah uh, church in berkeley california and yeah. i call him my ministry but i don't spend much time in his church on sundays but he's somebody i reach out to so i think there's some point we've allowed many forces in this country to, to act like left-leaning politics and church are not the same when really if you're black i don't know how you would not lean to the left because that's where the politics of this country will embrace us more on the left than they will on the right obviously we know black conservatives but i don't know how you could get totally away from the church as a black person in this country because the church has been 
many times on the front lines of saving us. I don't know if you've heard of a man named Martin Luther King Jr. I don't know if you've heard of him. Mm, but without, no, what was, no, no, but no, no, no. <laughs> let me. I've heard of many Martin streets. Yes, I know exactly. many streets in the country. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so the guy that was named that they named those streets after was from the church, and his politics leaned to the left, uh, despite what conservatives try to tell you on his birthday. So yeah, I think they, we've allowed the media to pretend like those things don't go together, but they do. Now, when you got the call, did you feel some level of anxiety of just questioning what it would be? Or did you feel that it would be very much in the normal construct of what you do daily? What was your initial thoughts when you got a call that Kirk wanted to interview? Well, first of all, let's be clear. However long you've known who I am, I've known who you are much longer because that's how this works. You've been around for a long time. So I've always had respect for you. Know what your career was about. Know what you were about. Know that you were also a person who, when you have had times where you have not lived up to what you, who you wanted to be, you've talked about that publicly. So mm. I know who you are. Let <laughs> me be clear about that. Wow. And didn't know exactly what this conversation would be about. I know now that this Cosby thing has come out. A lot of Black people have put me into a different group than they had me in before and want to pull me aside and talk to me about why I did the wrong thing by making that. And so I'm open to have that conversation. So I show up everywhere sort of prepared and also interested. So I certainly showed up here interested and excited to see where this was going to go. And, you know, happy to know you're a fan, but also happy to talk about things. Whatever you want to talk about, I'm happy to talk yeah, about. Well, so, yeah, well, I can already disappoint your you. Your reputation precedes you, as you know. Well, I can already disappoint you, but because that is not the reason I want to talk to you. Because I want to talk to you because I am highly inspired by you. There's not much about you that I would have a different view of, about. So you can just going to take your shoes off and let your bunions breathe because this is going to be really just a moment to be inspired by how you impact people in your world. Now, I do want to talk about how these things have affected you and how you've learned some good or bad or lessons maybe you would do different, but I am inspired to want to know how are you? You know, like I said, I believe that, you know, things happen for a reason. And so the last few days has been pretty, I've had a lot of questioning. Actually, just I just got over about a COVID. So this was my first go around with the Rona. So you, know, <laughs> you spend a lot of time by yourself. And in that time, I started to go like, you start to think about a lot of things. Am I doing the right thing? Even if I am doing the quote unquote right thing, should I be doing it? Mm. You know, I got a family to think about. How does that affect them in the world? You know, I always seem to be off the beaten path, but do I have to be off the beaten path? So I've been thinking about a lot of things recently and sort of like, you know, proud of the work that I've done, knowing that the work has evolved over time, but also like I got into being a stand-up comic the same reason lots of comics do, because it sounds like a fun profession. Well, at the current state of the world and the current state of my career, there's way less fun than I had bargained for. Mm. And I have to be real about that, but it doesn't mean that the work is wrong. It just means I have to process that. I want to know, how was it for you even starting in comedy? Did you make a decision that from your experience with your mom and your family growing up in church, that you were going to be a nasty comedian? Were you going to be more <laughs> like Dick Gregory? Were you going to be more like Richard? Like, yeah. how did you navigate what you were going to do? You know, I feel like I can talk about this more openly now since the Cosby doc came out. But as a kid, I grew up, there was two comedians that I thought were the best. One was Eddie Murphy and one was Bill Cosby. Mm -hmm. I knew Richard Pryor. I got that he was the best comedian of all time. But yeah. as far as being relevant to me, it was Bill Cosby because he was on TV all the time and in all the spaces that I was. And Eddie Murphy was like, you know, if you weren't there, you can't really imagine how big Eddie Murphy was and how influential mm -hmm. Eddie Murphy mm -hmm. was. So those are the two comedians. And I knew I was not either one of their public personas. I was never going to be as dirty as Eddie Murphy or even as good as characters as Eddie Murphy. And I was never going to be whatever Bill Cosby was. That Bill Cosby show universe felt like it was more of my life. I did not grow up with the financial privilege that family did, but I felt like it reflected more of my life. And so I felt like somewhere between those two, I will find something. But I didn't really think of myself as being political, even though I came from a very political household. I used to have a joke in my act that I was 11 years old before I realized that a cracker was also a delicious snack. So <laughs> I definitely came from a house where she was talking about the movement and the man and racism. And I would say everywhere my mom went, she was the first black person to go to that space. So there was a lot of conversations about that. But for me, I think the more I started doing stand-up and the more that I got older, I think this is just kind of the family business, talking about race and racism and trying to make the world better than you found it. And the fact that she was denied her doctorate because they didn't even offer that at Stanford at the time. And so she mm -hmm. was way ahead. Just tell me real quick about your mama. 
Okay. <laughs> I started thinking, I always love my mom. You know that song. I know you know that song. So I was an only child. My dad lived in Mobile, Alabama, and I would see him in the summers. I lived there for a couple of years in high school, but I mostly grew up with my mom. And we moved around a lot because, as I say, she was a black woman with an opinion, which means she had to move sometimes. She always was pursuing more. She wouldn't settle for what she was told she could accomplish. So she would always try to find a better job or more independence. And so mm. uh, that was the example that was before me. And at some point, she decided she didn't want to work for anybody else. And she started self-publishing books of Black quotations called Famous Black Quotations. And she self-published out of our house, uh, would sell them, pack up box of books and sell them to Black bookstores around the country, go to Black book festivals. We lived in Chicago at the time. Nobody ever put together books of Black quotations before. Now it happens all the time, but it was definitely came from her. Henry Louis Gates has talked about that book. Wow. It's a book that a lot of Black folks at that time had in their pocket. They were pocket-sized. You could keep them on you. And so that's how she put me through school, put food on the table, selling these books, famous black quotations books. In fact, <laughs> even though now, luckily, we've gotten to a point where she can just sit back and let me take care of her. She's got a new book that'll be coming out in another famous black quotations book. She's 85 years old and she can't stop, won't stop. She believes in not taking no for an answer. And she believes in doing stuff that helps the community and helps the conversation. So that's just where I came from. I don't think I would be doing this kind of work without for her. Well, you're talking about can't stop, won't stop. So your mama's like the ditty of books. <laughs> for sure. For sure. She was doing that before. He just put the words to it, but that's how she was doing. Can't stop, won't stop. Now, was she religious when you were growing up? I mean, I think she grew up in that generation where the church was, the black church was central to your whole universe. So even whether or not you were religious, it was a place where, especially like when we moved to Boston, it was where you could find the black folks in your community. Mm. So certainly she participated in, in the church and we would go on Sundays and we'd hang out there all day. But it was a place of finding the community in addition to finding the message. Man, I cannot imagine the impact, even as a young black man living in Boston and all these liberal mm -hmm. places that you were raised in and, and all the conversations you were having, especially in the 70s, as just people of color, that had to be so impactful on you. But I still want to know, do you still consider yourself now a comedian? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I haven't been on stage in a few years because of the pandemic. But I think that the engine that sort of fuels everything I do is the engine of being someone who wants to ask questions and wants to find out new ways of thinking about things, which at a basic part, a comedian is someone who's like putting things together that other people aren't thinking of. Mm -hmm. And I do want it to be funny and I want it to be entertaining. So I still consider at the end of the day. If I had to write something down on my tax form, it would be comedian, even though that's not exactly how I'm making my money now. But I can't separate who I am from being a comedian. That's just the way I think. I'm always thinking about jokes. And even when I work on United Shades or the Cosby Doc, I'm just looking for ways to make it translate, more communicate. And humor is the number one tool of that. And now just even talking about United Shades, because I'm a fan of United Shades. Thank and you. I know that you you got a call like 24 hours right after the FX show got canceled. How did that pitch go? When you went to CNN, you got that call. How did you pitch mm -hmm. this idea of United Shades of America? Well, you know, there's that thing in show business that they say it takes 10 years to make an overnight success. Yeah. What that means is that you have to put the work in so that when success shows up, you're ready for it. Because if you're not ready for it, that you won't even recognize that success has showed up or you won't be able to make it into a bigger success. So I had my first show, Totally Biased, which was executive produced by Chris Rock. Yeah. That show got canceled. By the time I got to the CNN office, they already knew who I was because I had done the FX show. They already felt like I was the kind of person they want to work with. And they felt like there weren't a lot of comedians who had my perspective. So I was in the very fortunate position of I didn't have to pitch them anything. They already had an idea for a show. Wow. And they thought you could be the host for this show. You got to there was a dog food commercial back in the day that I was thinking about where you the dog food uh, makes its own gravy. <laughs> you know, you don't know if you were that commercial. It's kind of nasty, performer, but yes. Yeah, yeah, no, it was gross, but it was the whole point. It's like, you got to make your own gravy. You can't show up like dry dog food and go, hey, well, help me be successful. Yeah. And so for me, the only reason I got to a position at CNN where they were like, we would like to add you to this pilot was because I had done all this work to sort of prove where I was in the world. Beautiful. Even though I wasn't famous necessarily, they already had a good sense of who I was. And all those showbiz meetings go so much better if they know who you are when you sit down instead of you having to explain who you are. So now your show has survived the Trump presidency, a global yeah. <laughs> pandemic, an insurrection. I want to ask you, Kamal, what, what does United Shades of America mean to you now? And what's different about the show now from when it first premiered 
back in 2016. You know, I think we're getting a lot more. When the show first started, we were looking at bigger issues, you know, immigration overall or policing overall. Every season now we get more micro on the issues we look at. Mm -hmm. So you go from policing overall to in season five, we did an episode about defund the police. That's a very different way of looking at policing than just policing in America overall. Yeah. So I think that like, you know, we've looked at different parts of the immigration issue. You go from just like immigration in our East LA episode in episode one to talking about dreamers specifically, like the telling the story of a man who was born in Mexico, but raised his whole life in the United States of America, served in the military, got out of the military, committed a crime, and then was deported back to Mexico after he had served his time, even though he had never lived in Mexico. (laughs) So you talk about like, what is immigration in this country to let's tell specific stories that are much more impactful, I think, the more specific you are. And for me, I've changed a lot through this show. When we started the show, Obama was in office. You know, So yeah. that's a different way. As a black man on a TV show, I'm looking at America very differently than when Trump's in office and now in the post-Trump era, which is what this is not a new era. It's just the post-Trump as president era. So for me, I'm very clear about what I want the audience to know in a different way than before I was like, sort of like, I'm not sure exactly what I want you to know. No, I know exactly what I want you to know. And I brought in more voices from the community to tell these stories. I got to ask you a question. Come out. Okay. All right. Here we go. And I know that some of this stuff you know, they may want our black card and we may have to put it up for a minute, but it's just a question. And you should be able to ask the questions. Sure. <sighs> Name something good and something bad from your view during the Obama presidency. Oh, sure. Okay. And something good and something bad during the Trump presidency. Well, see, first of all, I'll be clear. Naming something good during the Trump presidency is going to be way harder than naming something bad during the Obama presidency. I understand. Like, let's just be clear about that. I understand. That, like, just by the nature of being the president, the president does bad things. The president does things that, that nobody's going to agree with the president all the time. So I would say absolutely. You know, what I learned during the Obama presidency is many of my Latino, Latinx, and I go back and forth because I'm not sure where they're settled on that yet, but many of my Latino and Latinx brothers and sisters saw him as the deporter in chief because he had deported more Latino folks during his administration than even George W. Bush did. Obama did. Wow. In a shorter period of time. So that is something that is, you can Google that, you can look it up. Also, the Obama era was really the beginning of the drone strike America of America overseas, where we would send in these drones overseas. So these robot planes that attack people so that we don't suffer any collateral damage, but they suffer damage. And a lot of innocent people got killed during those drone strikes. So that's two things I would name off the top that happened during the Obama presidency that I don't agree with. Uh, Was that hard for you to just do that? Is it hard? I mean, here's the weird part. There are some black people who never want to hear you say something bad about President Obama. And then there's some black folks who never want to hear you say something good about Barack Obama. So no matter where you go, I know that somebody who's listening is like, ah, why do you have to say that? I think we have to be better at having more complicated conversations. Is it hard? No, but I'm just prepared for, for whatever comes off of that. Is that's the thing. I'm always trying to be yes. clear about what I say so that when the consequences come back and be like, yeah, I saw that coming. Brilliant. Brilliant. All right, please continue. So something good. Absolutely. Obamacare hopefully is the first step towards a, some sort of version of universal health care in mm-hmm. this country. Mm-hmm. Obamacare has saved many people. No other uh, industrial country has people going bankrupt from healthcare. So Obamacare is certainly, so that's one thing I could say. I could say other good things, but let's just do that one. And I think it's also just super important that I have three daughters who don't think it's a big deal for a black person to be president. Now that's more of a symbol, but it's symbols are important sometimes. Yes, they are. Brilliant. Okay. Please continue. I, I okay, also Trump. asked you about right, your other so, boy. Whoo, it's funny. We have an episode of United Shades about, uh, wokeness and how wokeness people think wokeness has gone too far and the right has weaponized wokeness and one of the lines in there is something effective like of all the bad things trump did during his presidency and he did a lot some were just more petty than others we could spend the whole time talking about the bad things that trump did but absolutely i would just say cynically weaponizing the divides in this country as a way to accrue more power for wealthy white interests and specifically wealthy white men is probably one of the worst things he did. Mm. Cause I don't think Trump believes in anything other than Trump. And I think he cynically surrounded himself with people who were just weaponizing the divides in this country as a way to uh, accrue more money and power 
for wealthy white men specifically. So I think that Trump just looked at the country the way that like a mob leader in a movie would look mm-hmm. at a restaurant. Let's get all we can out of this restaurant and then burn it to the ground. Wow. So, and, and again, I could go on and on. About <laughs> the fact. I think in the, you know, if anything, COVID would have given him a great opportunity to unite us because all he had to do was give us good scientific advice and he couldn't even do that. Mm. And on top of that, he uses a way to weaponize hatred against Asian American folks yes. with all the slurs. of. Yes. So yeah, to me, yes. we could go on and on. Do you have uh, one good? You know, Thinking Frederick Douglass was alive was another one. <laughs> uh, do I have a good? This is going to be damning with faint praise. I think for some people, they are firmly aware now that whatever they think this country is, it is always in transition. And as much as the myth of America being the greatest country on earth, I think that bubble has been popped for a lot of people. It's only as great as we make it. And if we let other people make it into something else, then it will be something else other than the greatest country on earth. I think we had a good PR team for a long time, putting that out to the world that we were the greatest country on earth. And really, maybe we were just the greatest marketer of culture on earth and not necessarily the greatest country on earth. Ladies and gentlemen, Reverend Bishop, Dr. Elder W. Come on, Bell. Yeah. <laughs> now, so I want to talk about this episode that you did in your show that had the streets talking, it had the block on fire. Uh-oh. Like they were talking about this at every church, Sunday dinner, potluck. Uh, everybody was talking about this. The episode of you and the KKK. <laughs> yeah, that was our first episode. Let's that talk was the, about it, bro. Who yeah. was in the room when we were creating and we we're going through ideations and the idea of this black man with this wild hair sit down with these KKK people and do a show that had so much impact? So first of all, I would just be clear. It was my idea. Nobody pitched it to me. At the time, it was the pilot. And if you know TV, pilot is the episode that you pitch to the network to then make them buy the rest of the season. So I knew as a person who makes television, I got to go big or go home. So what's an idea that if I, the other people who are currently hosting on CNN shows couldn't do that, they couldn't pull that off in the same way I could do Mm -hmm. it. And as a black man, I've always had natural curiosity about the KKK, the history of the KKK, the president of the KKK. So it became like even a personal challenge to myself. Could I sit down with a Klan member and talk to them without losing myself, without becoming a lesser version of myself, without sort of giving them the power. So that was my own personal challenge. Now, as far as who was in the room, while there was one of the execs at CNN was a South Asian man, everybody else, as far as I'm aware, I was the only black person and person of color who was in a position of authority. And once we started making it that first day, I realized how, <laughs> sorry, I don't know, I want to swear on you, but you I realized- You can swear. I realized how screwed up that was (laughs) because when we were making the show out there in the field, talking to the KKK, there was no person I could turn to who had any sense of what I was going through while I was making. Mm. There was no black person, any position of authority who could be like, come here, let me help you with this. Or, you know, I think we do where black folks, even if you don't know another black person, this happens at like the DMV all the time. You just look at some black person, they'll look at you like, "Mm mm-hmm, and you don't need to say anything else. Yeah, buddy. And it helps you get through that experience. Yes, sir. There was nobody I could turn to that experience. So it was really difficult to shoot. And then it also meant that when we went back to edit it, I didn't have a level of input into the editing because they looked at me as like the host of the show, not an executive producer, which is what I was. And so there's things about that show that it's like looking at baby pictures. Like, oh, I wouldn't do that the same way again. Wow. Or I, would, I really wanted to make that episode a lot funnier. And at the time I was told, well, if it's too funny, it doesn't make the clan look scary enough. And I'm like, they're the KKK. <laughs> They've already earned their reputation as being scary. Let me have the power here. So wow. certainly when people watch it now, there's two things. One, people on Twitter will be like, I'm worried for you. It's like, I'm okay. That was many years ago. And two, when people criticize, especially black people, I'm like, yeah, I get it. I'm not going to shy away from criticism. That's why I try to be specific about what I say, because I want the criticism to actually be like something that either I already have thought about or something like, no, I don't agree with you. But yeah. I could criticize that episode. Certainly, it made the point of, I'm here to do something different than you normally see on TV, and I stand by that 100%. Is I want to ask you this, come out just as a Black man to another Black man. During the process of all of that, did you ever have a moment of fear? So, yeah. So, when we shot the uh, cross-burning scene, which they called the cross-lighting, because they say, and you'll appreciate this, that the lighting of the cross represents the light of Jesus. They can go to hell so, for that. <laughs> I go to hell for that. But please continue. I appreciate that. So when it got, we were out off the main road, well off the main road, like down a side road, 
and in the middle of like a forested area. What the, I'm not saying we were in the middle of the forest, but that we were surrounded by trees. And when we had to wait till it got dark before they would light the cross. And there was a moment where I was like, is this a setup? <laughs> like now what that camp? it's dark, we're in the middle of some tall trees. I'm surrounded by clan members. I don't even know the crew of this show very well at this point. Are a hundred clan members about to show up and just take me down? So come out, you are in the woods and mm-hmm. they are lighting this cross. It's mm-hmm. dark. Pitch black. I'm quite sure this is not a cosmopolitan city. No, no, no. We are in Dawson Springs, Kentucky. There you go. So there's no Starbucks you can run into. Oh, no, no, no. And were they being Mm -mm. nice to you? Like, like they knew you were a black man, right? They were told before I got there that I was a black man from CNN who was also a stand-up comedian. They knew somewhat they were getting into. And were they saying, hello, how are you? So I would say there was two factions of the Klan there that day. There was the faction who sort of showed up to be on TV. And so they said, hey, how you doing? Even some welcome. And then there was a faction that sort of stood away from me the whole time and sort of always watched from afar. Yeah. Well, I would say it was the faction who was like, we can't believe they let this yeah. <laughs> N-word come up in here. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, you know, I would say that the one who mean mugged me the most was one young woman who looked to be in her early 20s, blonde, had red fingernails, which I saw under her clan oh, robe, who looked basically like young Britney Spears. The whole time she looked mad at me. Like the whole time, look, she was ready to start a fight. Like oh I can't believe God. they invited this dude up in here, or maybe it was love. Who knows? But the fact is, like the ones who I think were the maddest to me were the ones who stayed the furthest away from me. Okay, so you left that experience as a black man. Did mm-hmm. it take a minute to kind of be able to sleep well at night? Did you have any anxiety? Like, what was the end for you after that experience? I mean, that week ended up being very stressful. It was the first week we'd ever shot on the show, so I didn't know what normal was. But we ended up flying in a second security person just to, like, stay up all night at the hotel we were staying at just to make sure nothing happened, that they didn't storm the hotel. Because it's one of those places where everybody knows the hotel you're staying at because there's only one hotel in town. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we ended up flying in an ex-security guy. And, you know, I get back to the hotel. I call my wife, call my mom, call my dad because they just want to know how I was doing. So... It was certainly a very stressful week because that's the thing. Not only did we go talk to the Klan, but we stayed like in and around those towns. So, yeah, you know, we were in Harrison, Arkansas, where every now and again, they put up a billboard there that says uh, anti-racism is hate. So there's some sort of thing they put up, you know, to let people know that there's some white supremacists in town. And so you don't know who you're looking at. There's definitely way more good people in that town than bad people. But you don't know that if you're just walking through the streets and you're from out of town like I was. With that, we're going to take a quick break. You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host. Created it. Been doing it for seven years. I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show. But my listeners wanted to write the ad for me. And here are some of the things they said. Not your regular juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests, great laughs, and great gossip. It's a comedian's take on the hottest headlines. Juicy Scoop is the pop culture news you want to hear. No BS, no filter, no filler. Raw, real, and in the moment. Throw in the hilarity of amazing comedians that you will instantly be obsessed with, a juicy crime story, and a dash of normal life in L.A. moments, and you've got yourself an amazing week of Juicy Scoop. Two episodes every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. It will never let you down. And we're back. I am I'm speechless of your courage. I'm speechless of what it really took to make that first episode, your pilot episode. And now here you are six years later and you've traveled the country talking to people of different walks and just many people that have impacted their culture, their society. How have these things made you as a man of color in America a better man? You know, I think I've taken the show home with me. So I've formed some lifelong relationships with people I've met on the show and really understand that part of my charge, even though it's not in my contract, is to see what I can do to actually help people that I meet in the world. So it's not just about filming a TV show with them and going home. It's about like, what can I do now that I'm home to help continue the good work you're doing? So right now, 
with everything going on with the Supreme Court and Roe versus Wade. We did an episode about reproductive justice in Mississippi with Lori Bertram Roberts, who runs a bunch of reproductive justice funds down there. And so even today, I was tweeting about her saying, here's the work she's doing to make sure that reproductive justice exists in Mississippi. I guess I could easily just be like, thanks for making the TV show. See you later and not talk to these people again. But I really understand that like the work is to continue these relationships and continue to use my platform to shine a light on people who need it the most. I think that's beautiful. Listen, as I was preparing for this and working on this conversation, you know, it is interesting that some people do think you are an atheist. And <laughs> oh, yeah, and I mean, and, I, I will say this. There have been times that I've just sort of because of the comedian, you just have fun saying stuff. Yeah. Like it's just, you know, so, and there have been times in my life where I certainly have questioned what do I believe or why do I believe what I believe? But I do think that some people put that on me being a left-leaning person who lives in Berkeley. So I think they just uh -huh. go, well, that means he's an atheist. Can a left-leaning person living in Berkeley be a Christian? <laughs> like you said earlier about like living in these liberal cities. I think one thing you know about as a black person, a person of color, when you live in liberal cities, you know, it ain't all as liberal as people think they are. So really? certainly. Like I said, Pastor Michael McBride has a church in Berkeley, black man with a church in Berkeley. So yeah, Berkeley is not everything people think it is. I'll say that. So years ago on an episode of your first television series, the show called Totally Biased, you joked that atheism is the highest form of white privilege. <laughs> <laughs> I still have some belief in that. <laughs> okay, well, you know what? Tell me more about that. I think there is a thing of a, a certain strain of whiteness, and you see that in this country, especially at the highest levels of politics and CEO, like Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg, this idea that like you make all this money, so you have accomplished all this, so you deserve all this, and you deserve to create the exact life you want. And if you do it, it's not bad. Yeah. To me, that often leads people down a strain of like, oh, then I must be the ultimate decider of the world, so therefore mm. there is no God. Man, so man, that's so yeah. good. Hold on, hold on. Let that breathe for a minute. Just let that breathe. Okay. Come, come on, come on, come on, come on, Pastor. Come on, come on. Let's <laughs> let's let that breathe. It's because I think that that's meaty and strong on so many levels. Like it has so many components of truth to it. Do you think that people can be successful and still have a vertical idea that is a belief system that something exists bigger than themselves? Do you think it's possible? Because you and I both know that most intelligent people would say that's why religion has always been for the oppressed. It's always been for those that are poor, those that do not have a certain sense of academia to their mental and social construct. Do you believe that you can have both? I believe you can have both, but I believe that the temptation is to let the higher purpose go. Mm. I certainly believe you can have both. You know, this is why I think, you know, a lot... That Bible's got some good quotes in it. I don't know if you've heard a lot of them, but. Uh, <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. You can actually tell me where this quote comes from, but the one about easier for uh, for uh, uh, what, a camel to pass through the yeah. eye of a needle than the rich man to get yeah. to heaven. Yeah, it's in one of the Gospels. Yeah. I think what that is saying is that once you start to believe in money as the ultimate arbiter, it becomes easier to let go of moral principle. I believe it is impossible to become a billionaire in this country and to have paid everybody equitably along the way. Ooh, man, come on. That can't be true. That I mean, I would say, well, here's the thing. Once you get into those, those, the tech billionaires, the billions upon billions upon billions, I'm not trying to shade any of our billionaires. Well, I don't know. I'll shade all the billionaires. But I do say, I think it becomes pretty challenging. Maybe it's not impossible but pretty challenging to have paid everyone equitably along the way and to have spread the wealth, to have done the thing you should do in those circumstances if you get to that multi-billion dollar status. I mean, if you look at Jeff Bezos and he's one of the richest people in the world, there are many examples of Jeff Bezos not paying people at Amazon fairly and equitably and making people work too hard to make the money they make there. I don't know what his religious status is, but I do think that when you start to really prioritize money as the decider of what you want to do in your life, yeah. Yeah. Morality starts to slip. I yeah. Yeah. And I think that's such a good lesson for all of us. I am so inspired by what you're saying because, and I say this with all humility, Kamal, that's why I've always been an advocate, not for religion, not for religion, mm -hmm. because there's so many conversations that we need to have to deconstruct the idea of religion, right? But this relationship with a loving God that loves all people, no matter what their circumstances are, is I think that that's why that conversation is still a relevant conversation. Because when we talk about morality, 
we are making this big decision of what's right and what's wrong, right? And if there's a right and wrong, then there has to be a moral law giver, you know? And so when we talk about these moral laws and how they're executed, when you're sitting at the top of the ladder and you come with this moral construct already, you know that it benefits you to be good to other people. And so that's mm -hmm. why I am an advocate for the conversation of faith, for the conversation of God. And I just wanted to throw that out there. It's I don't want your tithes. I don't want you to send me no offering. We got enough of that. <laughs> no, no. I just wanted to just throw that out there to you. But now, just because we're having this great conversation, your understanding of God and faith, how would you describe it? How, like, how would you construct it or deconstruct it or even reconstruct it? So, yeah, certainly as a grown up, have gone through like, you know, I don't go to church. Uh, I don't, well, I can just say, I was going to say that often, but I don't go to church. Let me just be clear about that. But I certainly know when I am in a black Christian church, I feel more at home than if I go to my wife's Catholic church. So I know that there is a thing inside of me that resonates with that. I certainly know that the way in which I communicate with the greatness of the universe is through the idea of God. And I feel very comfortable with that. And I feel like if I lost that, I would lose something. If I decided, nah, there's no God, I'm not going to deal with that anymore. I don't think that helps me personally. Mm. I certainly think that when I operate in a way that is not thinking about others around me, I'm not leading a life that is good for me. Mm. So for me to live in a way that is of service to those around me, that is better for my wife, that is better for my kids, that makes me feel better means taking the privilege that I have and trying to use it to help others and trying to take care of more people around me. So for me, I understand that is all wrapped up in this Christian idea of God that I was given as a kid and that I did put aside for a moment and go, ah, I'm too smart for all that and go, no, nah, yeah, I don't yeah. think I'm too smart for all that. <laughs> <laughs> That's dope. That's dope. As a matter of fact, I want to know building this Cosby doc. Was this an idea that started with you? What was the genesis, even in its embryonic state? Did it come from you to be able to take on something? Because like you, Kamal, I, I was raised on Bill Cosby. I lied to the lady that raised me that I needed to get HBO for a school program. And I was playing for a church, Kamal, that paid me $25 yeah. a week. I was 12 years old. They paid me $25 Ooh. a week, which was paper. That was a bag. Yeah. $25 yeah, a week at 12? Oh, come on, man. Come, yeah, on. Yeah. come on, bro. Yeah. That was the bag. <laughs> I was securing the bag, right? And so yeah. I wanted to see that HBO special, Bill Cosby. What's it called? Himself? Himself, yes. Himself. And I remember being 12 years old, just impacted by that. That was like 1983, mm -hmm. 84, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so I remember going up to my friend's house and staying up all night because they had VCR tapes for hours and yep. hours of the Cosby show. And I just remember dreaming of having a family like that. My lustful crush on Lisa Bonet, you know, all <laughs> you of that. and everybody else. Yeah, yeah. You know, all of that. Who whispered this idea to you to be able to uncover and just deconstruct the father that most of us had as kids? I mean, yeah, it's funny. I, this question has been asked of me many times by Black people who don't know that they trust why I did it or want to believe that it was put in my head by some outside force. But if you are a Black person who grew up in Bill Cosby's America, uh, like you and I did, specifically at the age group that we are, because yeah. I think the people who are older than us have a different perspective and the people who are younger than us have a different perspective. Yeah, yeah. But those of us who sort of like grew up in Bill Cosby's America and then wrestled with these accusations and then the group of us who came to believe these women, like as I yeah, do. Yeah, yeah that whole doc series has been in my mind since I first heard about all these women, mm. like not as a project, but it's like, what do I do with all that I knew about Bill Cosby? What I know now, what do I do with all the good things that I point to in my life that come from Bill Cosby? What do I do about all the influence he's had over my life and career? And even the influence he had over me as somebody, it's not important to just be good on TV. You also got to do good in the world and you got to yeah. do good in real life yeah. and be good in real life. Yeah, I tried to take those lessons, but what do I do with all that now? Is all that stuff a lie? And then how do I talk about it? Because like now if somebody asked me, who are the comedians you grew up listening to? I can say Eddie Murphy and Bill Cosby because I've done this whole doc that explains how I feel about Bill Cosby. Mm -hmm. But 10 years ago, if you said, who are the comedians you grew up uh, being inspired by? It was hard to say Bill Cosby because I didn't want to get into that conversation. <sighs> and so. The idea for this before it was ever a series, which the roiling questions of like, what do I do with this? That I would sometimes have with other black folks or other people who are not black about like, what do we do about all that? Can I, am I allowed to say I was inspired by Bill Cosby now? And also, how do we have the discussion about 
sexual assault and rape in this country without talking about Bill Cosby as one of those parts of discussion. And Black folks, because we have so few role models that we have many of role models in our community, but so few who are promoted through the system to be stars in America, they feel so much more valuable to us. So I understand Black folks not wanting to let him go, but I feel if we're going to keep him out there, we got to be able to talk honestly about it. And and on top of that, the more I learned that 33% of the women were Black, that, that this idea that like all these women are white women, that wow. no, 33% of them are Black, wow. of the ones we know about, it, it becomes a Black story that feels like, I have to learn about this. I'm going to do all this Googling, whether or not it's a TV show or not. So I'm going to do all this work on my own. But then it became to me that, it, that maybe there was something to be done here. And the greatest thing I can say about it is that the survivors who were featured in it feel like we did them well and got their stories out in ways that they haven't been gotten out before. How did you even create that level of trust with them, though, who may have experienced this kind of trauma? Again, my career is always off the beaten path. I couldn't have done the work I did in the in the Cosby doc if I hadn't done six seasons of United Shades of America, learning how to talk to people about some of the most painful and difficult things they're going through in their lives, but do so in a way that also made them feel at the end like I wasn't exploiting them. So like that's where the humor comes in. Yeah. By making them laugh, laughing at their jokes, really letting them know that I feel lucky to be in their presence and not that I'm here from TV to make them famous or to take their story and run away staying in touch with people, doing all the unpaid labor that you have to do sometimes in this business, especially mm -hmm. if you're a person of color, where you stay in touch with people mm -hmm. after it's over because yes. you don't want people to just feel like you ghosted them. Yes. So all that unpaid labor, uh, Geraldine Porce, one of the producers of the show, did a lot of that unpaid labor. And a lot of them, they said they wouldn't have done this if, but because it was me and they'd seen my work in United Shades, they're like, if anybody can pull this off, I think Kamal can pull this off. So I think my United Shades was a business card of like a person who likes to have good, productive conversations about difficult things. So with all of that background that you did have with, with Shays and all the other things that kind of prepared you for this, why did you think or you had fears that this may ruin your career? I mean, I think, you know, I got an opportunity to write that op-ed for Time Magazine. And I was like, I'm going to put in all the things in this that went through my mind while I was making this. Because I know there's a lot of questions that people are going to have. And really, I want people to know this thing was made by a person I, I, this is, I'm aware that I didn't make a, uh, uh, a superhero movie where I can just be like, yay, I made this fun thing that's in the world and is empowering and we can all feel good about it. And I can just sit back and collect the plaudits that now I'm a person who feels this deeply and a person who understands what the stakes are and knows that there are going to be some people in this industry and in the black community and in the greater community who this is going to be a, a line in the sand where they go, not him anymore. He did that. And I don't know that I still know what the repercussions of that are. I know I don't actually, but I feel good that the work has landed well with the people I wanted it to land with and has brought new people into the discussion. I've seen so many messages from people saying, I didn't want to watch this, but I started to, and then I got compelled to finish it. Or I didn't go in believing these women, but now that I've watched it, I believe these women. Or even if you went in and didn't end up believing anything, I believe that there's enough in there that you'll get something out of it. So for me, I just wanted people to know that a human being made this, not some opportunist who thought it was some sort of career move because I certainly did not think it was that. Well, it is obvious that you already feel a certain way about what you wanted to accomplish with the documentary, right? You do feel fulfilled and complete and what you were hoping it was going to do oh. with you, right? Oh man, I never feel fulfilled and complete. I'd like that feeling sometime. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think the, the documentary is still out there. So I think not every day, but I regularly hear from people who are just discovering it. So I do feel like I have heard from enough people about it, specifically the women who are in it and other survivors who feel like the way in which you handle the survivor stories that I as I always give credit to Dream Hampton and Surviving R. Kelly, that I sort of took inspiration from her telling those stories, that we handled them in a way that we gave the survivors, the women in here, a three-dimensional version of themselves. It wasn't just like, tell your sad story and bounce. It was like, tell me about who you are, where you come from. So that by the time we get to your story of what happened between you and Bill Cosby, we know something about you. So yeah. I feel like just by the fact that the survivors who are in it feel like we did well by them for most of everybody I've heard from, that makes me feel that the mission was accomplished. But it doesn't mean that like I'm not still going to have to deal with every now and again somebody having feelings about it, which again, that's why I try to be specific about what I say and do so I can be prepared for those consequences. You know, it's, I know we don't even have the time come out even talk about why it is naturally for our community to just not quickly believe women. It is amazing to me that even after all of the moments that we've had 
with surviving R. Kelly and all of the information now that is accessible just because of social media and how we are able mm-hmm. to access uh, things about people's lives that we didn't get a chance to have that two or three decades ago. But we are still a society and a community that we are distrusting of the stories of of women. And, and I just mm-hmm. got to ask you that in your process of this, why do you think, and I'm going to be honest, why do you think that a community that has been so oppressed, that has seen so much marginalized us and revisionist history and these these painful experiences where the legal systems did not believe our young black men. And we've seen over and over and over again how not believing the stories of our own led to generations being imprisoned. Why do you still think that continues for even those that we as men were created to protect and trust? our black women. Why do you think we have such a hard time believing the voices of survivors? Yeah, well, it's funny. Earlier you talked about, you sort of made a joke about black people sort of take buying the white man's Christianity. First of all, we all know Christianity came from the Middle East, so it wasn't the white man's religion originally. Come on, come but, on, man. Uh, North Africa, North <laughs> Africa. Come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Parts of North so, Africa. Come on now. Yes, yes. So I would say that one thing we have taken on in this country as black folks is generally, and this is, first of all, not all black people are like this. I want to be clear about that. Amen. Amen. Prioritizing the voices of men over the voices of women. That's something that white culture has taught us. Mm. The patriarchy. Prioritize. So that if two people say something, but a man said it, then we're going to listen to the man say it over the woman say it. That could be if it's about which breakfast cereal to buy. Like that's that's just the way that goes. It doesn't have to be about serious things. That's good. But then when you talk about, accusations, we have created a society, and this goes through the world, but certainly in this country, because we prioritize the man's voice and because on top of it, throughout the society, full stop, we don't do a good job of teaching sex education, about intimacy, about how to respond to partner violence, because we don't teach any of that stuff in Mm. schools generally, not all schools, but most schools generally. Yes, yes. That means that we don't prepare society to even hear women when a woman says, I've been sexually assaulted or raped. Because what we have taught through all society is that, well, that's probably not true if the man said, it's he said, she said, as opposed to going, wait, it just generally does not benefit a woman to come out and say, I've been sexually assaulted or raped. It is generally going to mean she's going to go through a lot of hardship, a lot of difficult times, the criminal justice system's on her time. So if a woman's going to go through all that, we should probably take her seriously. Mm. We don't have that kind of society, even still to this day. So part of this to me is about, we need to redo this whole society. And we have an opportunity right now in America with all the fractures and breaking and billionaires buying social media to go, wait a minute. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Does this society make sense? And I think in many ways it does not make sense and we have to stop accepting it. So for me, I think I really want to take that off the black community. We have, that is something that a white America has taught us is not to believe women. That's good. And and to prioritize men's voices over women's voices. Thank you for teaching me that as well. Thank you for uh, even, even, even teaching me to make sure that, I do not limit that just to the black experience, but a lot of what we have learned in Western culture has been passed down to us as people of color. Mm-hmm. And that is just a truth. So thank you for that correction, even in my own space. Yeah, and you know, no correction at all. Just like, I'm just always thinking about like in these discussions. And that's why, first of all, we're just having a conversation. Yeah. In a conversation, you're allowed to go, wait, I said this earlier, let me change my mind. Yeah. I think sometimes people will cherry pick these parts of the conversations out to go, oh, he said this, but I really feel like this is all stuff I've learned over the mm-hmm. over the past seven years working on United Shades. Like you, you want to get the micro conversation, but you always want to zoom out to the macro conversation yeah. to see where they connect. And I always want to have the posture of a student, so that's why I thank you because I'm always wanting to learn how to better my people, but first better myself, right? And you know, even in the entertainment industry, you know, even do more to stand up in these issues about sexual assault and just the reverence and the respect of women. Do you think that black men in the entertainment industry and in general do enough to stand up against sexual assault? I think we can all do a better job and I include myself in that. And it starts with like just not accepting even just boorish behavior because I think it all sort of leads to worse and worse behavior. I think there's a sense of like, I talked about this, talking about this series is like, as on United Shades, I'm sure you have this experience. On United Shades, I'm number one on the call sheet, which basically means I have the most power. Mm-hmm. So, and the person who's at the bottom of the call sheet has the least power on that mm-hmm. set. But mm-hmm. the way that works, generally in the history of Hollywood, means 
that if I say something, more people are going to listen than if this person at the bottom says it. And the person at the bottom says, I did something wrong, they're likely to just get fired. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so when they built show business, I always say, they, when they're like, okay, we're going to start making the dream factory, they didn't go, wait, before we do that, where do we put the human resources department? Yes. yes. So a lot of this is those of us in positions of power in show business prioritizing making sure that there are places for people on these sets to go if they have been taken advantage of or if they've seen something that they're suspicious of. And I think that that requires those of us who have positions of power to make it clear that we won't tolerate that on our sets anymore. And that's something that every black man of power in Hollywood can do on every set they're on. They can go, look, we need to set up a situation where there is an 800 number or there's a person around who can be reached out to anonymously if anybody does anything wrong. And that means prioritizing healthy work environments over profit, which we just talked about in America, many of us want to prioritize profit over everything else. That's where that morality starts to slip. And I'm a part of this too. So Mm -hmm. I definitely try to make sure that people understand that like, I can't get away with everything and I need to keep myself in check. And I think for some of us, it means stop putting people around you, the more powerful you get, who are just going to say yes to you. Put some people around you who will say no to you. So I want to shout out to Dwayne Kennedy, who works on the United Shades of America, who's a stand-up comic I've known since I was 21 years old, who will say no to me. Hey, man. (laughs) That's great. That's great. That's beautiful. You know that I've got to ask this question real quick, though. I've got to ask this, and we don't have to spend a lot of time there. But I'm only asking it because it has been you. asked before. All right. And mm-hmm. you know where I'm going. You probably already know, but me, you're the same age group. And when it comes to the creativity of our community, hip hop, lyrics, the engagement, the misogynistic commentary, do you think that we're at a place that we are demanding so much from others? How do we navigate the freedom of speech of those in the culture with the responsibility of protecting our own. I know that's some, some is I know that's mm. high grass. I know that that's some, mm-hmm. some tedious commentary conversation. No, 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 but no. But no. I would I be hypocritical so all, if I didn't ask it. I think our whole way in which we look at celebrity has shifted, but needs to shift even further. We need to get out of, because you make a song I like, I must like you. Mm. And I think right now we are in this thing where we allow ourselves to believe the legend and not believe the person who's in front of us. I feel like, and this is what I got from studying this Bill Cosby stuff, the more we can go, I like this song, but that does not connect me to who this person is. And therefore, just because I like this song, that does not make this person a leader of my community. That does not make this person a voice I should listen to, a voice of authority. That just means this is a person who wrote a good song. And I see a lot of this with the less investment we put into people who are making art. And the more we put into the art, the easier it is to navigate conversations of like, why are we assuming that this person should speak for our community just because they make music we like? Mm. Stop to put that. We need to, uh, you know. <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> I feel you. I see the sweat coming down your eyebrows. I see it. Well, well, it's just to me, it's like I see this conversation around Kanye West all the time. And I get super confused around the fact that, like, I'm not saying you can't like his music, but why should that mean that you should expect he could run for president? Mm -hmm. Why are these things connected? Mm -hmm. Because on some level, we get caught up in our own ego. If I like you, I only like good things. Therefore, you must be good. Mm -hmm. Instead of going, I just like this song, I can keep it pushing. So for me, Absolutely. I support every artist's right to say whatever they want to say and be as foul language as they want to be. But next to that, it says to me, like, whatever you are in your art, it doesn't mean you get to be a leader of my community. And we need to stop turning to these people as leaders of the community. I find that my best version of leadership is to point to the people who are the real leaders. So in all the work I do, I bring on the people who work in the community, the experts to go, don't listen to what I say, listen to this person. And I'm not saying anything because I'm just going to let that breathe for a minute. I'm just going to let that marinate for a second. I mean, I feel like if I come out and go, I have a new plan for policing in America. Because I, and you know why you listen to me? It's because I'm on television. (laughs) Like, I need to meet with the president. I don't think I need to meet with the president. And when I get invited to things, not that I've been invited to meet with the president, but when I get invited to things with politicians, I'm like, I'm not the person. Now, I will go if you let me bring the community member or the community leaders who are in those things. But we really need to disentangle ourselves from this idea of what celebrity is. And I think, again, it comes from the fact that we don't, as a community, 
have enough representation in the halls of politics. We don't have re enough representation in the halls of uh, corporate America. And all that is because of structural racism and systemic racism. So therefore, it means that we have to pick people who are celebrities as de facto leaders when really that's not what their jobs are to be. Well, now that some of the smoke is cleared <laughs> on the Cosby doc, and many have watched okay. it or decided not to watch it. Was the backlash what you expected? As an only child who became a stand-up comedian, my imagination is way more vivid than reality in general. So <laughs> I have all sorts of levels of things that could have happened or might have happened or might still happen that reality hasn't lived up to as far as the backlash. Yes, there has been backlash that I expected because I'm very creative. So I'm like, oh, yeah, I knew that would happen. But there's also been people who reached out to me who let me know they appreciated who I didn't expect. So I think we'll see where I get invited and where I don't get invited over the next stage of my career, which will tell us a lot. One thing that I found out that we have in common, and I think it's very funny and it's quirky, <laughs> is that we both are Denzel Washington groupies. Oh, yeah. Yo. Oh, yeah. Yo, Kamal, you don't understand. <laughs> That's my guy. What, like, what makes him your guy? Like, what is your favorite line? Just give me a oh, favorite oh. line. Ooh. Okay. So I'm like, yeah. So uh, uh, <laughs> it's funny. The really depends on where I am in my life and what I'm doing at the time. So they don't all, they're not all even about the fact that the lines are good. It's about how Denzel delivers them. Yes. Yes. So yes. it's not even like, I think that's the thing that makes Denzel so great. He is truly one of those actors who he picks up the phone book and just starts reading names. You're like, here we go. <laughs> Why do you think black folk love Denzel so much? Like black folk love them some Denzel. So first of all, to answer your first question, I regularly pull up his version of like, oh, I say and I say again. <laughs> You've been had. You've been took. You've been hoodwinked. Bamboozled, led astray, run him up. This is what he does. I think I've watched that more than I've watched Malcolm X speeches, and I've watched a lot of Malcolm X speeches. I pull that up just to get myself, get my spirit right. But then some of them are like less important. I wish you had more time, which mm. I don't let people figure out which movie that is. Hold on. Uh, what is that? I wish you had more time. Man on fire. Oh. It's a scene where yeah, he's yeah, about yeah, to. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> First of all. But the way he delivers it is so classic, though. Yeah. Oh, let me tell you something, man. I got to give you one flex before we go, though. And please forgive me. I repent, and you can pray for me. Okay. For my 50th birthday party, I was in L.A., and I asked him. I said, man, would you just stop by? Yeah. Would yep. you just come by? Man, yeah, 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 you know, he's a, and I say, you know what? Hey, you know, I'm going to be right down the street from, you know, from the crib and I'm going to have a little, you know, yeah. just a little 50 dinner. Come mm -hmm. out. He showed up. <sighs> he walks through the door. You can hear rats peeing on cotton, right? <laughs> watch this. Guess what the gift was? What? Every man in that room got to ask Denzel a life question. Can you imagine? You talk about a master class. Why do you think we love us some Denzel? So, you know that expression, this person understands yeah. the assignment is a way to go. It's not just that they do the job. They do the job fully all the way. No questions asked. Better than you could have hoped for. Denzel understands the assignment. When Sidney Poitier handed him the baton of Ooh. you are the leading black actor in Hollywood, Ooh. Denzel didn't go, I don't know. Let me see if Wesley Snipes wants it. He said, I understand the assignment. That means that it's not only about what I do on screen, it's what I do off screen. And it's about being honest. Like Denzel doesn't build himself as a perfect person. He's yeah. very clear. I am a human being yeah. filled with human failings. He's talked about his relationship with his wife, Pauletta. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. he's not perfect but he understands the assignment of what it is to be a black man in Hollywood, specifically from the eighties through about, about five years ago, 10 years ago, when we started getting a multiplicity of black actors in yes. Hollywood yes. who don't have to understand the assignment the same way. And even when Will Smith hit Chris Rock, 
Denzel understood in this room, I am the senior black yes. voice yes. in charge. Yes. And so it is on me to get involved in this. Yes. He could have sat back and let that thing play out the yes. way it was going to play out. It's again, unpaid labor. He understands Ooh. that the assignment is to do the unpaid labor. So for me, I mean, great at what he does, of course, but understands the assignment. That's why Denzel, your flex is bigger than my flex, but can I give you my Denzel story? Please give me your flex. Give me your flex. Okay. It's not, it's not a flex compared to yours. Uh, Cause I couldn't invite him to my party <laughs> if I wanted to. So Denzel, he was honored at the AFI tribute to his career. And I got an invite mostly because of my podcast. I think the Denzel Washington podcast I'd had. And my wife was like, you got to meet him. I was like, I can't do it. I don't want to, you know, it's a room full of stars. Everybody's there. But she basically makes me get up and goes, you can't have talked about Denzel this much and not meet him. At mm. some point in a break in the show, she sort of guides me over to him. And I'm like, I don't want to go. I feel embarrassed and stupid. I just have a podcast. But she's like, you cannot leave this room without having said hello to Denzel. So I get over to him. There's a woman who it was a journalist whose name I can't remember, and I need to get her name, who knew him because she he had given money to like a scholarship she had done. And so she basically leans over to him and to sort of go, hey, this is Kamal Bell, da, da, da. And I see him look over at me with that classic Denzel look of like, who? <laughs> and then his whole face softens. He stands up. He looks at Spike Lee, who's sitting right there. He goes, my nigga. Hey! <laughs> Hold on. I'm sorry. Your flex is better than mine. Your flex is better than mine. I'm sorry, because every black man, every black man in America wants Denzel Washington to look at them yep. and say, my nigga. Every black man. Yep. Oh, that is wonderful. This has been wonderful, man. Well, first of all, I got to tell you that this quote that you had just blessed us with today, I'm going to use that in a myriad of ways. And what, what did you call it? Unpaid labor? Unpaid labor. Yeah, the do, unpaid labor. Talking you, about the labor that, that you often have to do as a person of color, especially as a, as a woman of color, a black yes. woman that you have to do to get through your life or that you feel a responsibility to do. Do you know how better America is because of black people's unpaid labor? Do you know how our communities... We literally wouldn't have a country without the unpaid labor of black folks. Yep. Yeah, I'm not talking about the original sin. I'm not talking about the uh, brick and mortar of America. It's I'm talking about the moral fabric, just the heartbeat of America. Mm -hmm. America's heartbeat is because all the white babies that some black lady was raising, that she put good in them. All of the mm -hmm. family fights that mm -hmm. were broken down because of mm -hmm. unpaid labor. All of the teachers that stayed after school trying to deal with mm -hmm. the little black boys that were about to flunk out. I mean, our society is a better society because of black and brown people's contribution in yep. the context of unpaid labor. Yep. Thank for you sure. for that. Man. Um, Thank you. I want you to finish any other Denzel story you got. Anything that you want to leave us with? You left us with that gem of unpaid labor. Is there anything you want to tell us about? So I have a book out called Do the Work, which is an anti-racism workbook for adults. Specifically, and I want to be clear on a show that has black folks listen to it. I think black folks would get some out of it. This book is written for white folks who read all those anti-racism books and don't, don't know what to do next. This book is actually giving them homework assignments. So here's what you do. White folks who don't know what to do. Uh, and That's then good. I would just say to tie up the Denzel thing, I think one of the one of the things that made me sort of really understand how I process my belief in God was actually a somewhat unheralded Denzel Washington movie called The Book of Eli. Ooh. Come on, come on. Come when on, I saw on. that movie and I started weeping, I was like, wait a minute. Why am I weeping in an action movie? Because of the way in which he understood the assignment and his belief in God and what that meant was like, that feels right to me. Oh, man. Ladies and gentlemen, I have enjoyed this. I hope that you've enjoyed this. Have you enjoyed this, Kamal? I've enjoyed this. This has been great. Like I said, I needed this today, so I appreciate this. Where do you rate this one at? Like in the top 10 that you've done, <laughs> what does this one rate? <laughs> On the on the Denzel scale we had from the from the podcast <laughs> number the top end being all from the Malcolm X speech the top end being this is what he does and the bottom end being Ben Took this is what he does. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I have enjoyed this opportunity to talk with someone who is a disruptor. He is shaking the context of 
what it means to be good in America, what it means to be right in America, what it means to want to leave a name and a legacy that at times can look like unpaid labor, but at the same time can challenge us to think about the things that really matter if we want to really make America great again. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me celebrate and give thanks to this incredible young genius. W, come on, Bell. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. Thank you, sir. So thank y'all so much for listening to Good Words, man. I hope you are enjoying yourself. I hope you're, man, enjoying the journey that you're taking with your boy. And if you are, please do me a favor. Leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Can you do that for me? I appreciate it. And don't you forget, you can never go too far or you can't come back home. Good Words with Kirk Franklin is a collaboration between For Your Soul Entertainment, Sony Music Entertainment, Arts Inspiration, and something else. Produced by Janicia Francis with senior producer Danielle Jones-Wesley. Associate producers are Danya Abdel-Hamid, Rachel Chodar, and Kyra Asabe-Bansu. It's executive produced by Ron Hill, Reese Brooks, Sarita Wesley, Tom Koenig, Hybrid Agency, and myself, your boy, Kirk Franklin. This episode was mixed by Calvin Bailiff, and special thanks to Charlie Yador and Steve Ackerman. Mm -hmm.